It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank Taste you. of democracy, very good. Hello, Mark Kenny here with yet another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. The novel coronavirus continues to shape the world in 2020 and while Australia got off lightly in the first six months, the situation in the second most populous state of Victoria continues to cause alarm. At 17 deaths yesterday, August 9 was the country's worst day yet, but the daily news on infections was more encouraging with the number dropping below 400 for the first time in a fortnight or so. Victoria's descent into infection hell has stopped the state economy in its tracks and is hammering the national recovery as well. And now, everyone knows it could happen again, and it could happen elsewhere. Interestingly, the first significant cracks have appeared in the Federation too. If you're listening in America, where the Trump administration has tragically politicised the pandemic from the beginning, this might sound quaint. But it could be critical in the way governments perform from here, and in how Australians view their leaders. The Northern Territory will become the first jurisdiction to hold an election during this pandemic, and it seems the crisis atmosphere is already affecting the outcome as voters reward incumbents for the job they're doing. We'll know more about that on August 22. Today, however, we're going to look at the national political situation with two of the sharpest minds in the business, my regular Democracy Sausage partner, Dr Maria Teflaga, who is lecturer and is also director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics here at the ANU. Hi there, Maria. Hello, everyone. And I'm also delighted to welcome one of the most recognised, connected and incisive commentators on national political affairs, author and columnist, Nikki Saver. Hi there, Nikki. G'day. It's terrific to have you here. I've wanted to have you on Democracy Sausage for some time, so I'm glad we've uh, brought that about now. Um, you wrote last week about the match-up between Josh Frydenberg and Jim Chalmers, the treasurer and shadow treasurer, respectively. Uh, they're both quite impressive characters. What was your what was your central point there? Well, I think the point um, basically was that 
the economy um, will decide the fate of the next um, election, will decide the result of the next election. Uh, so the contest between um, these two men, one the treasurer, the other the shadow treasurer, will have a huge bearing on the result. And um, I just thought it was interesting to have a look at uh, both of them and see what each of them brings to that debate, uh, both on a personal level and also um, a politically um, ambitious level. Yeah, because um, they're, well. they're both uh, viewed as future leaders, aren't they? They're both very hardworking, both, both very competent uh, within their own parties, respected for the amount of work they do and how they go about it. They're good communicators. They're very good networkers as well. Yep. Uh, and, and they are talked about as future leaders. So it is quite an interesting matchup, isn't it? Yes. And uh, the interesting thing too is that they see themselves as uh, future leaders. It's not just that um, others have said this about them, but they make no secret of their ambition uh, themselves. And I think that's really interesting too, because normally um, people who want to be leaders usually shy away, oh, you know, I fully support the leader and, you know. I couldn't possibly um, say unless my colleagues yes, were to Yes, I'm me. happy to bide my time and, and all that <laughs> kind of thing. But um, it's very clear with uh, these two, that that is where they want to be. And clearly, one of them is going to get there. Maybe both of them uh, will get there. Well, it's possible so, that neither of them could get there, I suppose, but because it's, it is such an iffy business, isn't it, Maria, in terms of, um, you know, the scheduling of these things. If we think back, I, I always think back to someone like Mark Latham in 2003 when Crean's leadership was crashing and then there was that, that moment where, um, where the leadership suddenly became a possibility for a young Mark Latham. And even he knew, I mean, he's made himself a disreputable figure in so many ways since. But He was even, disreputable then, but anyway. No, that's a very good point. But, <laughs> but uh, even then he knew he had at least enough self-awareness to know that he was, it was too early for him. But that the the train come the leadership train comes through the station once usually for for someone and you either get on it or someone else does. Yeah, I, I think that's very true, and I, I agree with Nikki. Actually, I think there were already signs um, about Mark Latham's um, character, perhaps suggesting that he he didn't necessarily have the the precise combination of brilliance and madness required to be prime minister. Um, because let's face it, no one totally sane really ever gets to that job. I think it's just not um, what kind of happens in, in that kind of a business. I mean, what I what I have found really kind of interesting is. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of chatter around Labor circles sort of saying that the party should move on to Jim Chalmers, which which I think is um, a really weird and strange thing to sort of be saying. You know, I think Jim Chalmers has been in Parliament since roughly 2013, I think, from, from memory, which is seven years. Um, he has made extraordinary progress becoming the shadow treasurer in seven years, which says something about the opportunity structure of opposition. Um, but, you know, it's actually not a very long um, period of experience. And, uh, and that's actually something that is a sort of trend in politics in Australia, which is that careers are speeding up and getting shorter. And it's probably not directly correlated with the high turnover we have in governments, but I don't think it's necessarily very helpful. I think it is useful to actually sort of see one kind of problem come around once and sort of, so when it comes around again, you're not actually surprised because 
you know, there are actually very few true surprises in, in politics, right? So. Yeah, well, that's true. And, I mean, Alexander Downey used to make this point that you really needed to be in, in, in Parliament for somewhere at least a decade and preferably two to be seriously looking at a leadership position, that there is just the sort of accretion of experience that needs to needs to occur over an extensive period before you can seriously be a successful leader. Now, I mean, Maria's point maybe is right that there's been this kind of acceleration of this, but there's been an acceleration of a whole lot of things in national politics and a lot of them haven't been particularly good, as we know, six prime ministers or whatever it is since... since um, Who can keep count? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, it's a fascinating point. What do you think? Well, I, I agree uh, with all that. Um, Howard used to say you needed to be a public figure for 20 years before you could um, regard yourself as being even remotely qualified to do the job. Um, well, that rule no longer applies for all those reasons, um, you know, that, that you've both stated. Uh, there's been such a churn. And uh, Chalmers did think very seriously about putting his hand up for both the leadership and the deputy leadership after the 2019 election, and then he decided against it and I thought that that was the right call, even though I had said maybe he should uh, run for it, that they should skip a generation and go to him. But in retrospect, it was the right thing to do because he does need more time. He does need more time, uh, both uh, for his own development, but also for his party and the electorate, I suppose, to get used to him, to understand him, to see him perform at a, at a number of different levels. But it's also true to say that other political systems, by definition, elect newbies. I mean, the US political system has elected at the moment, I mean, disastrously so, I might say, but nonetheless has elected someone in 2016 who'd never even been on a school council, from what I can tell. He'd literally but he was never... a known figure. He was a celebrity, wasn't he? He was someone who had, um, you know, done a very popular TV show. He'd been a, you know, property mogul and all that. Been bankrupt a few times. Yeah, you know, done Life all experience. these exciting things. He knows what Dutted it's like. numerous <laughs> investors. Was it, all was of it, that, chased was after horrible women. Horrible misogynist. Pig. Yeah, um, the whole thing. But they they did know who he was, yeah. whereas, uh, you know, Which is I amazing that they actually elected him knowing who he was. I mean. <laughs> well, that's the other interesting thing um, about Trump if we uh, talk about him later. That yeah. In spite of all that. Well, in spite of all that, but of course the electoral system had a role to play there too. You know, yeah, he, a big role. <laughs> yeah. He didn't get, it was three million votes shy of his uh, opponent or thereabouts, and, but, he, but he got the votes where he needed them, of course, and that's, that's, that's he had part the part of, of. He had the largest inaugural rally ever, you know, he's, yeah. he, he, he's told yeah, us yeah, that. That's true. So. And yeah. has the photos to prove it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, but, it, but going back to, uh, to Chalmers for a moment, to Jim Chalmers for a moment, it, it's also interesting that he, I mean, one of the things about being a successful leader is having good judgment. Now, no one's got perfect judgment. Everyone makes mistakes. But uh, your point, Nikki, is a very good one, I think, in terms of the decision that he made. He could have pushed for leadership. He could have pushed for the deputy leadership. Um, in the end, presumably, he did the deal that he wouldn't do either of those things because he wanted to do the economic top economic job as being shadow treasurer. He'd, of course, been chief of staff to Wayne Swan. He's a, he's a, he's a PhD graduate of this university. Mm. Um, he's very well qualified for that, and I think he's showing that metal in that position. But it does represent quite a sound 
piece of self-awareness and judgment, strategic judgment, not to push too fast, uh, too far, too fast. Mm. Well, he also has a young family, like a, quite a young family. Yes. Um, that That's a factor, um, obviously, but um, I haven't had all that much to do with um, Jim. I've had a little bit uh, to do with him, and he is quite an impressive um, person in the way he presents himself. I mean, he's not a flighty person. He's not a frivolous person. Um, you know, he doesn't have those, well, that I can tell, those kind of character flaws that um, existed in someone like um, Mark Latham. I think he's a very solid and a very substantial and a very decent uh, person and who's very well connected uh, to his community as well. So he brings uh, that to it. And he is across his brief all the time. I mean, he knows that stuff backwards. So that's another way he is very evenly matched with uh, Frydenberg, where, you know, Frydenberg um, also presents very well, has a young family, comes across as a decent person, consummate networker, um, you know, all of that. So I, I just think it's um, in some ways an even more interesting contest than the one between the Prime Minister and the opposition leader. Yes, particularly because, uh, as I think we've all been saying, the, the economic dimensions of this COVID crisis are going to be so critical in a political sense as well. So how the uh, government positions the economy, how it manages the budget and how the opposition interprets that is going to be uh, quite decisive uh, in terms of the political fortunes of both sides. We're, we're some way from an election, aren't we, Maria? Right? It's, it could happen toward the end of next year. Um, it's sort of more, most technically due, I suppose, in, in 2022, uh, having been, you know, a three-year term from 2019. But um, w w there is so much we don't know at the moment about this corona crisis, how long it's going to last, how deep it's going to be, whether, we, whether we're going to have further outbreaks of the, of the calamitous kind we have going on in Victoria at the moment, whether we're going to get on top of that and then, and then get back to somewhere like we've been in the, in, in the months leading up to, uh, you know, to June, July. These things are all unknowns. And then, of course, there's the economic tail. How significant is the damage? Uh, we know the budget's no longer in, in, in the black or, or trending toward the black. So all of these things are, are critical. And these two players, Frydenberg particularly as the treasurer and his opponent in, in Chalmers, very critical to all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think the contest between treasurers and shadow treasurers is is very important for the sort of dynamics of, of politics. Um you know, if you look at Wayne Swan, for example, who arguably was quite a successful uh, treasurer, but he could never dominate the chamber. He could just never assert his authority over, you know, a sort of a, a string of opposition um, counterparts. And I and I think that is one of the reasons why, um, you know, Labor was never able to sort of sell its um, message on the GFC. The other is that they sort of tried to have their cake and eat it too, you know, like achieve a, a public policy goal over here, but actually, um, you 
you know, and try to bank the political benefits over there and they got all mixed up. And we can kind of see that a bit actually with what has sort of happened with um, potentially with the Dan Andrews government and hotel quarantine, you know, like it, it's, it, it appears to be at some point it's, it was conceived of as a job creation scheme rather than a sort of public policy, public health, sorry, quarantine measure. But to, to go back to your original point about the political contest, um, I guess I would sort of say two things. Um, it's um, the, the the nature of the, like, I guess what we would kind of call blood and guts political contest has changed because we don't have parliament structuring it in the same way. You know, parliament is a very adversarial um, chamber and it, 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 it forces the government under several forms of scrutiny, which it doesn't have to face when parliament sits, right? There's the internal scrutiny that the prime minister faces from his own party, um, which, um, you know, without having to actually stare them down in a room, he can he can avoid. Then there's the scrutiny of uh, the opposition directly in question time and, and more broadly the, the Senate, um, which, you know, subjects the, the, the prime minister and the government to different kinds of pressure. And then, you know, there's the media um, pressure on top, um, which, you know, the government is pretty much the only form of scrutiny the government is currently facing. But Parliament creates all kinds of opportunity structures for the opposition, which they don't currently have. Um, and then there, it's very little that they can do that is more newsworthy than uh, a prime minister or a treasurer, um, you know, trying to save people's jobs and um, livelihoods. And so, you know, when you're talking about uncertainty, like, well, the, yeah, you're right. There's all kinds of uncertainty around you know, what will happen to the public health crisis in the first place and, you know, the, the politics of the recession, which are pretty much only just beginning and have a long way to run. And um, I'm sure there will be a few more surprises to come, which may or may not work in the government's favour. And it's actually up to the opposition to capitalise upon them. It's a really good point you make about uh, there, are, there are a few things more fundamental than saving people's jobs and saving their livelihoods, you know, essentially ensuring their economic security at a time of crisis. It does tend to focus the government and focuses the voters' minds as well. Um, and I want to come back to that in a moment, but just to, to go to one other point that uh, came up in, in Maria's comments there, Nikki, about the authority of treasurers. If we think of the authoritative treasurers back in, you know, that we can remember, uh, we think of um, obviously Paul Keating, we think of Peter Costello, probably the two standouts, authoritative in terms of commanding the House of Representatives, but also quite significant power centres within the governments they sat in. Um, do you think Frydenberg at this stage has the kind of, or even to an extent, I think you would put Morrison in this category as as a treasurer uh, in in the in the Turnbull period. Um, some might, anyway. Do you think that uh, Frydenberg has that weight within the coalition government at the moment? I don't think uh, we have seen that yet, um, and we won't see it until we actually uh, see the budget in October where hopefully um, they will give us some idea of how they intend to get us out of this economic crater that we're in. Um, at the moment, really, all we have seen uh, from Morrison and from Frydenberg is the shoveling out of hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, that um, 
is not a very difficult thing to do. It's actually quite easy and it's incredibly popular. I mean, you might find that hard to believe, but (laughs) (laughs) um, very few treasurers um, actually get to do that. Um, In fact, uh, their job usually is to try and hold back. Yep. But there's no holding back, right? So uh, Frydenberg last week was um, saying that they'd just spent $300 billion on JobSeeker, the biggest ever welfare payment, in effect, in Australia's history. Um, okay, um, I think this it's job an JobKeeper, you mean? JobKeeper, yeah. sorry. So that is, it's essential, right? Otherwise, the place is going to collapse. But how long can you keep that up? And at what point do you start to uh, repay or or try to hope that businesses get back on their feet and start uh, re-employing people? We don't know, and we don't know what kind of program uh, Morrison and uh, Frydenberg are going to be able to put together to try and make sure that that happens. And we wait to see. So I think we have to withhold judgment on that. Well, I think it's probably going to be even over the longer term than that, really. I, I agree with you that's a pivotal moment. I also agree with you that um, you don't become unpopular giving voters money, which is uh, not, not surprising. I mean, handing checks out, for example, is, is hardly likely to make you unpopular with the recipients. But we shouldn't forget that, of course, uh, the treasurer that was doing that back in the period after the in, you know during the GFC and its immediate aftermath um, was you know Wayne Swan Labor was absolutely hammered at that next election it, it survived in 2010 of course we know there's another big dynamic there but few I other guess things going on there there were too. a few other things going on there but but I don't think we can dismiss the the overall background condition that essentially broke Labor MPs confidence that. Rudd was their man and and all of that. I mean, if they were super popular through the early part of 2010, I don't think there would have been a case. There was, I mean, a lot of people say there was no, there wasn't a strong case. But for there wasn't, there wasn't the bipartisan approach uh, back then that there is now. I mean, a lot of these measures that are being introduced are being put forward by Labor, it's by Albanese. It's uh, a very good point. The wage subsidies, uh, pandemic leave, yep. all sorts of things. Um, so Labor can't very well go in now and, and start attacking the government saying you're spending too much money. Um, so their avenues of attack uh, are very limited unless, you know, they get it. Uh, wrong, and there has to be a little tweak here and there in how how the money is distributed. Whether and, it's and they've equitable. made some of those tweaks, haven't they uh, already? And, and they, they have. I think one of the things that you could praise the government on, without any fear of contradiction from anyone, um, is their flexibility in some of these things. They have been prepared to be flexible, as you say. They opposed, in principle, the idea of a wage subsidy, and then introduced the largest wage subsidy one of the largest schemes in the world per capita and as a proportion of the economy, uh, and they've increased it since. And they've even rolled back conditions sometimes quite quickly. I mean, we had an, a readjustment to JobKeeper only three weeks after, you know, an adjustment to tighten it up, it was kind of re-loosened again to take account of what's happening in Victoria. So I think that's the kind of flexibility we need from the government right now because this is such a novel situation. Well, well, deft PMs have always stolen ideas from the opposition. It's a good strategy. Um, 
Um, but I guess, Nikki, like whilst we have you here, what I would really like to know, because you sort of alluded to this, what is the internal power structure at the top of government? Um, you know, it seems to me that some of these relationships are clearly functioning as kind of good collegiate relationships, um, but have they sort of altered or changed as a result of COVID? And how is that sort of shifting the internal dynamics within the Liberal Party, given that some of the biggest opposition to more spending is actually internal to the Liberal Party, not necessarily amongst voters? Well, um, it is clear that Morrison has absolute control and authority over the government and over the party. And uh, Mark was talking before about uh, the importance of flexibility. Um, that is a, I, I've been saying that um, Morrison has this ability to pivot at lightning speed. I mean, if you look at it, if you go back, um, Morrison in effect has made the wrong call at every single stage. He's opposed lockdowns. He's opposed school closures. He's opposed wage subsidies. He's opposed pandemic leave. Border but, closures. And border closures. Um, but then just at that, you know, right moment, just in the nick of time, he realizes that there's no point in doing that. And he just pivots on a dime, right? And changes position. And then it's like it was his idea to begin with. And, <laughs> <laughs> and away they go. And, um, nobody within the government or within the Liberal Party is game to criticise because it's all working, right? Mm. The minute um, they think it's not working, then we'll see uh, more breakouts. But while it is working, while he can do that and while he can convince people that he's, you know, doing the right thing, even if it is um, after a slight delay, then um, that's how it will continue. He's just the boss with a capital B. Let's take a quick break there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, just before the break, Nikki, we were talking about uh, Morrison's ability to pivot and his timing. People don't really remember delays, it seems to me. I and mean, one of the lessons of all of this is that, I mean, a delay in making a decision is really the absence of a decision. Uh, technically, in some cases, it is a decision and it, and it can have material fairly negative implications. And I think you could say that about some of the delays that have occurred through this. We We banned travel from China way back in late January, I think, early February, maybe late January. Um, but it was a significant amount of time after that before we stopped travel from the US. 
and the Ruby Princess in the US were our two main sources of infection for a considerable time. So there are material implications of mm. some of these decisions, but nonetheless, essentially governments, when you've got a fast-moving situation like this, they don't seem to... I mean, even uh, the the, um, the initial, you remember the so-called eye-watering $17.6 billion stimulus package, which was, literally was yeah. really quite staggering at the time that the government was spending that about much money. About five days, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, for about five days before it was completely gazumped by a, by, by a whole lot more. But the other thing is it actually took some time, quite a considerable amount of time for it to even eventuate that first one or that 17.6. I think that was technically the second one. They um, were holding out for the surplus. I mean, that was uh, the point of all that, I think. They and going through maybe a mental exercise. They don't, of, just might be able to. To get that surplus in. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And and I think they were also, to be fair, going through a kind of a psychological exercise that all governments were going through of trying to get their head around this. You know, it, it, it actually took some time to go from understanding the world the way it was to understanding the world the way it was emerging to be in this in this horrible, you know, uh, rolling crisis that was uh, enveloping the world. And uh, I think the job of government is to sort of Get over that and get over it quite quickly and start making some decisions. But uh, I think they're still do you think? getting their head around it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think there's yeah, a long way to Yeah, but putting three hundred billion dollars into oh, the yes. economy when yeah, you but are a. Do you think they've made that psychological leap that this is probably the way it's going to be for quite a long time without without you know being close to internal sources in government? It's it's difficult to know, but. From the surface, no, I don't. I don't think they have. I mean, I, I think one of the real difficulties for for this government in particular is sort of twofold. Like, if we if we kind of take a step back and think about like who has governed this country at the national level for the last twenty five years, you know, it's it's the coalition has pretty much done it for about nineteen years. The Labor Labor for six. So so the way the way society and the economy is structured um, is is pretty much this government's consensus you know it's not that they wouldn't want to do things here or there but you know um and so it was really interesting to me to hear Josh Frydenberg sort of talk about deregulation again and pulling out the you know Thatcher Reagan kind of handbook and one of the things that sort of struck me about that was well we've been pretty much doing that since like rhetorically since 75 and you know in effect since like what 81 or 82 how much more is there really to do and um, what we've been talking about for the last six years is really like a discussion around the fact that Australians are increasingly concerned about the fraying of the social contract and what there isn't is a consensus about what should be done with that. And I'm not sure and, – and now at a time of growing unemployment, huge uncertainty um, – you know, the government had a hard time, especially under Turnbull, ignoring these dimensions anyway, and they really were pushed around by Labor, right, on those dimensions. But I, I do wonder now if if they really – it will be convincing to people to sort of say, you know, more deregulation or, or more flexibility because I think for most voters that just means more insecurity, um, you know, less um, – le- like lower wages. I, I, I do wonder if they have – um, like I guess the imagination to sort of say what the sort of centre-right enabling state 
uh, enabling contract looks like, you know, like how are they going to build opportunities for frightened people? I I, I can't see that yet. Well, I agree. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose it's most easily encapsulated in the initial and quite persistent use of the idea of snapback, which has sort of gone away now as a, as a you don't hear it mentioned. But uh, it has a different name now. I think I don't think it's totally gone away. I think you know that you get the impression from Morrison. Um, you know, we've just got to get through this little bit, and then everything can start going back to normal. Well, I don't think so. I don't but, think but, that's going to happen. But to be fair, isn't isn't the job of a national leader during the time of a of a transient crisis? Um, and that is like a war or or something like this. It may leave you permanently changed, but hopefully the crisis itself. Uh, has a has a, a kind of an end point, and a leader needs to be providing the hope, the the vision of some sort of uh, you know return to life in an understandable non crisis type way. Uh, it, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing for a leader to do that without that being tied up in a and in, in some assumptions about you know a complete return to the way it was before, which I think we can all say is. Is not going to happen. And is, is, that is that is uh, that that's a sort of an, an an ideal rather than a reality. I think I think the hope that they should be giving to people is that we can survive, we will get through this, but it's not going to be like it was before. I mean, if we don't get a vaccine, and even if we do get a vaccine, who knows how well it will work? That there will be things about our lives and our working practices that will have to change probably forever. And I don't think the government has really um, explained enough to people that some of the things that we are having to do now, we are going to have to do for a very long time. So yes, provide hope that we will make it through, but we will make it through in a very different way. And I think they need to start spelling out what those ways are going to be and not just give the impression that, yes, businesses can reopen and you can go back to doing what you were doing before because you can't. It's not going to work because as soon as people start going back to that way of living and that way of working, it will just erupt again. Well, let's look at that in a bit more detail then because a couple of the the numbers that that, that sort of lie at the at the base of those assumptions that the government's making are the unemployment rate and the effective unemployment rate. It's now expected, due to the downturn in Victoria, the lockdown and, and the setback that that has done to the national economy as well, that 10% unemployment is the figure that the Treasury is predicting. That's the official rate and they're talking about an effective rate, which Morrison said the other day, uh, to quote him, was would be in the high 13s. Now, it may well be even higher than that. Um, if we also think about JobKeeper, we think about a system that is now – there are 4 million people who are on JobKeeper, as I understand it, as a result of an increase that uh, that has occurred from the loosening of some of those conditions and the situation in Victoria – there are a number of businesses there which economists warn are essentially zombie businesses. Um, 
I think, for example, that that the number of businesses going out of business, companies going out of business, is even lower this year than it is in any normal year when we're when the economy's growing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So you've got a situation where even if the economy was going, uh, you know, moderately well as it was before, uh, there would there there are more businesses that are being propped up at the moment, and of course that has material implications for unemployment. If there are companies going out of business or companies seriously downsizing, that's going to be significant. So that, this question about what comes afterwards, I mean, if the, if the Prime Minister says, look, these are the conditions we're going to have, you're no longer going to be able to have 100 people in the, in the front bar of wherever it is or you're not going to have restaurants that can have this many seats in them and you can't have theatres that have this many seats in them and and public or transport football needs, stadiums or football stadiums and and all of these you know really quite central pillars of of the economy uh, th- th- that that is presaging a dramatic increase in unemployment and a dramatic decrease in economic growth mckinsey's got a report out today i think which is actually saying that um uh, the, the their warning of a second wave of job losses, unemployment fueled jo- uh, fueled job losses in construction and retail in particular. Uh, they're talking about permanent structural changes in the economy and those that come from a business cycle shock. I think particularly so that construction would be um, you know those sort of structural changes in the economy and and then you look at the the cycle shock from demand in um, in retail. It's it's really quite significant. So. I can I can understand the the, the 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 very difficult balancing act that governments are trying to uh, have at the moment in terms of putting that money in the economy to keep it going, keeping confidence levels as high as they can be kept at this time, uh, and not warning that in fact you know thirty percent of you are going to hit the fence. Well, excuse me, we keep hearing um, that throughout this whole crisis, doctors have had to make very difficult decisions about who they can save and who they can't save. Well, I think um, the government has to make those kind of decisions about industries and about businesses. I mean, there will be businesses that will go under regardless, right? So what is the point of shoveling money um, out to those businesses when they could, say, uh, be looking at other areas of the economy where there will be opportunities presented by this crisis, either in the fields of um, medical research or of, you know, building different type of housing, you know, not not high story uh, apartment blocks and so on. You know what I mean? There yeah. will be other things that will open up and that's where I think the support uh, should be directed rather than to areas um, that we know, sadly, unfortunately, are going to fail. But that's been the case, you know, since Industrial Revolution, that businesses, you know, blacksmiths went out of business when mm. cars came in and so on. So it's a really sad fact of life. Well, yeah, you, you can't you can't outrun time. I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what we were, we were talking about before. Like, um, I think the government is only coming to sort of realise themselves that um, they can't kind of have this holding pattern that, that these, these changes are going to be too significant. And yes, you're right. Like governments always have to balance not like literally crashing the economy with their, with their doom and gloom. But, um, if we can't go back, which we can't, 
what will the future look like? And and that, I think, is the question that the government has to answer next. And I, I was sort of thinking as you guys were talking, um, you know, well, what would Bill Shorten have sort of said in this um, situation? And whether or not his vision was the right one, I think he would have had one because of the policy work Labor had done and because they already had an idea of where they wanted to take Australia. And I think that is... Um, an interesting contrast to sort of think about, um, and it's something that we've been talking about on this podcast for a while, you know, that they're elected with no, you said at the beginning, actually, Mark, they're elected with, you know, pretty much uh, to, cut, to, to cut taxes and they, they've done that um, and they've legislated them, which might be a bit um, complicated perhaps going forward. Um, but, you know, yes, they've been given a problem to solve. But it's actually a really complicated problem. It's not yeah. discreet. Um, and so whilst it certainly is a problem, it it actually just unpacks all the boxes that some of them have been trying to shut because they're, they're too difficult internally or they don't really know what to do with them or, um, you know, um, it's it's threatening to, to their voters or interests or the way they want the country to stay. Well, history shows that there are often sort of different requirements quite fundamentally different requirements made of governments in dealing with the the immediacy of a crisis and then the the period afterwards and we see that you know with governments changing after world war 2 for example um, mm. even though the governments were highly regarded for the way they'd managed the crisis what the coalition's going to need to do if it is going to win the next election and you know this stage looks well positioned for that um, at least well positioned to be competitive, but it is some time away, and there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot of moving parts here. Um, but what they're going to need to do, presumably, is to re- recreate themselves as well as recreate the, the the country in that period, because they need to be a different party to address the kinds of structural changes that that are going to be brought by this crisis and which are going to be forced in terms of policy. That's that's a pretty big ask of any political party and particularly one where they've had so many recalcitrants that have essentially been the tail wagging the dog, as we know, since pretty much since 2013. And all that, I think, uh, says to me that the sooner Morrison can go to an election, the better it will be for him because those sorts of really difficult um, decisions about recovery and uh, reconstruction and and all that will take a while to sort out. So um, the sooner he can have the election, which I think will be in the latter half of next year, the greater the chances will be um, that he will get re-elected. Um, I don't think he would want to wait too long to have all those kind of really, really difficult uh, questions hanging over him. Like I say, at the moment, it is very well, I wouldn't say easy, but it's the less complicated part of the equation to keep funding um, all the services that are needed. It's it's what comes next, I think, that would make life very difficult for government. Yeah, like his political style is, it was reactive before, It's and reactive is the right uh, mode right now because the ground is shifting. Um, and, you know, as Nikki sort of made the point, like he has very good self-preservation instincts, um, even if he doesn't necessarily make the right call in the first instance. Um, and, you know, and that just goes to his skill set, which is in communication and in sort of, you know, structuring really simple narratives that appeal. Marketing. Yeah, 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 which appeal to to suburban um, 
voters. Uh, but yeah, I think that that sort of becomes more complex as time goes by. And I, I guess it's not clear to me exactly how well the government functions as a generator of ideas. Like what, what are the relationships between, you know, Morrison, Frydenberg, um, Christian Porter, and obviously Matthias Corman is going, um, which would probably be a big loss to the government. But, you know, like how well do those relationships kind of function? Where are advice and ideas being funneling in from? Um, you know, like what could we anticipate that, what they're going to sort of suggest as a solution or as a potential pathway. I don't think you'd describe any of them as a policy wonk, would you? No. I mean, this this is the great worry, I think. Um, where are the ideas going to come from? Um, well, they come, the come from They come from Labor. They just knock off the socialist edges, yeah. Well, they've, they've been. Yeah, well, uh, thank God for the opposition, I guess. Um, there have been a few of them. It was interesting, you know, going back to th- going back to what Maria was just saying then, and to a comment you made before about Thatcher and Reagan. I mean, Morrison's instincts sometimes are his first instinct. Sometimes isn't that good, but as as you said, Nikki, he has, has this fantastic ability to pivot to adjust the message. And I thought it was quite interesting that Frydenberg cited uh, Thatcher and Reagan in that speech at the press club. I was at that speech and I thought it was interesting that he did it. My assessment of it was that they have shape-shifted so much in government that he was really just signalling uh, to his to his backbench or to the base that, you know, we, we believe in these values even though everything we're doing at the moment is And like they loved it. Hyper-Keynesianism. Well, they did. But what was fascinating then, so I thought that was interesting and uh, and whilst I have a lot of respect for Frydenberg, I thought it was um, a cumbersome piece of messaging and interestingly the Prime Minister agreed because then when he was asked about it two days later, he I thought he was quite. It was interesting that the way he just sort of slapped it down. He slapped said, "Slapped it down." Completely. He said, "These are uniquely Australian solutions to uniquely Australian problems," you know, and 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 things like that. That's yes, what we do. Yes, but why did he do that? What was the point of doing that? I mean, um, why did Morrison do it? Why did Morrison do it? Why well, did he slap down Frydenberg when it was really um, quite a trivial thing? In the overall scheme of things, yeah, there aren't I that mean, many voters same... who would be that upset about it because they either, if they do know who Thatcher and Reagan are, then they're probably not swinging voters, uh, and if they and if they don't, well, it sort of didn't really do any harm. Yeah, well, Craig Kelly was out there around the same time. He's a bright spark, isn't he? Yeah, he's hilarious. He's the one who says too. that Daniel Andrews should be doing twenty-five years in jail for uh, manslaughter. For, yeah, for for not uh, giving uh, voters hydro hydro. What is it? Hydroxychloroquine. Oh, yeah, and and that he should be up on manslaughter charges. And Morrison was hands, asked yeah. about that, and he said, "I don't comment on Facebook pages." Well, yeah. I thought that was a much more serious thing for yeah. someone to say than for Frydenberg to accidentally. I mean, it wasn't deliberate. Say, "Oh, yeah, well, you know, Thatcher and." Reagan did good things and um, they're an inspiration. Yeah, well, it was all that supply-side stuff. I don't think voters know what supply-side means either, by the way, broadly. I mean, I know uh, listeners to this podcast w- would, but um, it, I, I find it interesting that that political messaging so often from uh, economic ministers uses that term, you know, supply-side and demand-side, I think. Or trickle-down. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a, that's a reassuring 
uh, image for, for the average voter. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I always find this kind of strange. Like, uh, I mean, Reagan increased the size of government debt and government spending. Um, so, you know, is that what he means? Like, no, clearly not, you know. And um, and, 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 and Thatcher was nowhere near as radical thing. as people remember um, or, or think, you know, she was highly pragmatic and she was, she was, I mean, something, I mean, if she hadn't have done it, Callahan and Healy would have basically done what Hawke and Keating did. Like that was already happening, already in, in train. Um, and then Blair did. Well, course. precisely, yeah. And it's fascinating actually when you think about that because a number of the things that she did, like national, uh, unnationalizing the, the coal industry, was it was a function of uh, the post-war reconstruction that the Brits undertook and they literally nationalised a whole bunch of industries, created the NHS, nationalised uh, the coal industry and she was undoing some of those things. Um, whereas in Australia there were, there were limitations on what could be done uh, on, on that post-war reconstruction due to our federation and due to the resistance that came from the states. So, yeah, it's quite, quite fascinating the way all of these things uh, have, have historical tales, but they also have quite interesting similarities in terms of crisis management and then what came after and how long it lasted. I but, do think this. Oh, I know. I was just gonna say, I do think this is going to be really fascinating. Um, this question about whether they do go to an election in the second half of next year, because if you think back only a couple of months ago, or only a few weeks ago, really, they were talking about pretty much um, accepting that job keeper and job seeker were coming to that cliff at the end of September, uh, and that you know vast amounts of this money was just going to be simply withdrawn. Not just in in terms of uh, from people, but you know, withdrawn from the economy, from the uh, stimulatory effect that it was having in the economy. Of course, they've moved on since then. But mm. uh, uh, can we seriously imagine that they are going to have the sorts of uh, dollar amounts, eighteen billion dollars a month, flooding into the economy th- through the next, the first six or eight months of next year? It will still exist in some form, I think, until the election, and I still think the election will be in the second half. I can't see any way that they would um, end it abruptly or completely um, before then. There will have to there will have to be some form of it still still going. I mean when you're up to a trillion dollars worth of um, debt, what's a couple of hundred million billion, billion yeah. here or there really? Well it's pretty much <laughs> what the Reserve Bank was was saying um, in their statement on on Friday, and and they they presented a, a lovely graph of um, government debt since Federation, and um, really the, the graph was sort of suggesting that there's plenty of scope to go. But I, I would like to say one more thing about Thatcher before people at me on Twitter. Yes, the Thatcher Revolution was devastating to many communities, particularly in the north of England. It, it shows up in longitudinal sociological and criminology studies. I'm not saying she was a saint. I'm just saying it's more complicated. That's it. Don't yeah, well, it's, I'm glad you said that because yeah, Martin Pierce, who's sitting here, was you know he was I, I was I was having to hold him back. He was going to sort of leap across <laughs> exactly. it exactly. Um, but uh, yes, uh, it's it's an interesting point. Uh, just before we leave this uh, financial side, um, because I want to talk about Victoria just briefly, but um, it's 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 interesting that the government has resisted any sort of talk of um, higher job seeker payment. You know, they've got the job seeker payment, which has this Corona levy on or corona bonus on top of it um but they've resisted 
anything that they call baked in expenditure. This is their big criticism. I, I put this to Josh Frydenberg at the at that aforementioned uh, press club address um, about the GFC and the comparisons, and he said, "Well, the great difference is that Labor." baked in all of this expenditure into the budget and we haven't done that. Everything we've done has been, uh, you know, turn-offable, if I can put it like that. Uh, yet Frydenberg has actually also indicated that he's favourably disposed toward a higher dole than has been the case in the past. Um, and there are now calls for significant extra money to be pl- ploughed into the aged care sector and I don't think too many people would argue that is not needed. Mm. These are the sorts of transformations, aren't they, that they are going to need? These are the journey, ideological journeys these uh, conservative politicians are going to need to make if they are going to get through this. They're going to have to junk that idea that they can just at some point pull this money out of the economy and return to where we were. Well, um, they definitely can't go back to um, what New Start was um, before this crisis. There's no way they can do that. So um, it might not be at the level that it's been set now with Job Seeker, but they will have to find a more decent and a more livable um, level for people who can't find work because quite simply the work isn't there. So and quite simply there's a lot of them and politically they become a much more important constituency as well, don't they? Yeah, um, definitely. Well, this was uh, one of the things after the 1990s um, recession that um, people who were unemployed, there were a million Australians unemployed as a result of that. And um, everybody thought Hewson might have been on a bit of a winner there as he was the opposition leader. But no, um, the unemployed people stayed with Labor because they felt that that was the side that was going to look after them best. So there are a lot of political considerations in here too. I, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting, it's, a, it's effectively a tacit um, admission or acknowledgement that Australians actually like a big state um, and they want to be looked after by government. Um, and not only just the economic reality, uh, like, you know, honestly, what was the government's alternative choice to just what crash the, the economy, but, you know, the government likes to ter- talk in terms of, you know, it being temporary and that's probably partly because they feel uncomfortable with the amount of spending, they've got the internal pressures, internal party management issues to deal with, but there's simply just the problem of inertia, expectation and path dependency. And so, you know, one way in which it represents itself is like they won't be able to go back to the old new start rate and they shouldn't because it's actually just bad economics. But you know, they are effectively building up expectations in the Australian community that government will be doing more and that will be difficult for them to resist uh, because who is going to step into the breach if not government right now until the pandemic is manageable? It's not really what can the private sector actually do if they're constantly being shut down? That's not tenable. Nikki, but, a feat- sorry, sorry. I, we're just getting short of time, but I yeah. do want to get to Victoria because there's been some, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, some some cracks coming with the tensions coming uh, with uh, Victoria. People uh, in the coalition criticising Dan Andrews, the Victorian Premier. The Prime Minister has himself kind of resisted this. I mean, he's had a few, made a few veiled swipes from time to time, but essentially everyone's talked about the relationship between those two men being surprisingly good and durable. Um, nonetheless, uh, as I say, they've, they've, they've 
been a lot of people who've been attacking Dan Andrews, and some of them have just been those kind of kind of idiotic things, like by by sort of lunatics on the right, like Craig Kelly. But um, what's your read of this? Uh, is this um, is this going to continue, and is it going to get worse? It's quite clear that a number of key ministers are from Victoria, Josh Frydenberg among them, and Greg Hunt and several others. It ha- definitely has the uh, potential to get worse, and I think um, the whole Morrison Andrews thing is a very convenient veneer, really, yes. um, because they're trying to keep the National Cabinet um, going. But as to what they both privately think um, of each other, I think it's pretty safe. We can make a few guesses <laughs> about how they really feel. And I think um, what was obvious last week was that one after the other after the other, um, federal minister, Michael Suka, Dan Tian, uh, Josh Frydenberg, um, all got stuck into um, Andrews in a fairly aggressive way, um, all ramming it home to him that it was um, his fault while Morrison was trying to appear above the fray. And I think that was um, quite a deliberate strategy on the part of the government um, that uh, they wanted the blame sheeted home to Andrews and to protect Morrison from all the charges about the neglect of aged care. And, um, you know, I could be very cynical and say that um, this happened at a time when Newspoll was out in the field um, and uh, there was a deliberate attempt to uh, ring fence uh, Morrison from that and guess what? Looks like it worked. Um, because yes, that's the, right. Uh, I mean, what are those numbers? news poll numbers? Uh, 30, 43, 33 in favour of the coalition on primary vote, 52, 48 on two-party preferred, and uh, Morrison ahead on better PM, 60 to 25 against Albanese. So perhaps you're right. Perhaps uh, th- th- that was all about um, uh, inflicting a bit of damage on Victoria without uh, Morrison himself being seen to be playing politics. Well, it comes back full circle to what we were saying uh, right at the beginning, which is it's really hard for the opposition to criticise the government without Parliament. And if Parliament was sitting right now, every question in question time would be about aged care. Which is why Morrison didn't want Parliament Exactly, sitting. which is a joke. Uh, I mean, if everyone else has to Zoom... Um, and has to teach on Zoom and has to, you know, attend all day Zoom meetings. I think it's not above the wit of the Department of Parliamentary Services. No, they and should be here. Highly aren't? intelligent, sorry, MPs to 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 do that. If 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 you can't come because you're stuck in a pandemic. Well, I know you think they should be here. I don't yeah. think they should be here, and I'll tell you why. Why? This is a COVID-free jurisdiction. Victoria is uh, currently in such a state of lockdown that people can't go to the pub, they can't go to the cinema, they're not even allowed out of their houses at night time after 8pm. 8, 8 uh, Queensland has closed the border to New South Wales and the ACT just on the basis of relatively small number in New South Wales because the ACT doesn't have a, a hard border with New South Wales. Uh, and we're contemplating a situation where people are going to come in from all around the country into this completely COVID-free environment for what with quarantine restrictions though those I mean, quarantine restrictions and everyone knows they give you some protection but they are not absolute and but it is when... a high risk endeavor for a low reward and the and the community that is most affected by it 
doesn't ha- hasn't had any say on it. I mean, look how popular the WA Premier and the and the and the Queensland Premier are for the way that they are rigidly enforcing the the sort of health interests of their population, and yet in the ACT. The, the, the half a million people in this jurisdiction and its surrounds have had no uh, no say in a decision to allow a bunch of people to come here from a place which I mean there's a hundred ACT residents on the board of New South Wales and Victoria at the moment not being allowed back into New South Wales in order to come back to Canberra. But Such is the uh, way this is being policed, and yet for politicians, people who, for whom I have some uh, um, let's say. Lack of confidence in their uh, in their ability to uh, stay within the rules. Just look at the way they brought their travel allowances. Um, I just think it's a, I think it's a pretty big call to be having a, a session of parliament that could be being done virtually, like everyone else is doing it. Well, no, um, I I don't think it would uh, work as well. Just um, like a, a lot of other things, and um, parliament sat during the nineteen nineteen pandemic, and it sat in Melbourne. And Queensland had uh, border closures then, but they still managed to do it. So if they could it's do a great it in idea 1919, you've just come up with. sit it in Melbourne. Well, that's what someone <laughs> suggested. <Send them. laughs> if they're so confident about these there. quarantine, you if they're so it. confident about it, go to Melbourne. There's, um, there's quite a few empty I don't care. There. I don't care where it's held, whether it's Canberra or Melbourne or Brisbane. A bit like the grand final of the footy. I don't care whether it's in Adelaide or or um, Perth or or Queensland. But it it should be somewhere, and it should be together because it is the most effective way of holding the government to account. And um, I've been watching the Morrison press conferences now for quite a few months and um, there is barely a question that he gets that he answers that he doesn't like and he switches quickly uh, to someone else and skates over it and then avoids it. So I think, um, you know, he hasn't been perfect in his responses to um, COVID and not as bad as Daniel Andrews, let's say, but still there are areas that he needs to answer for and the best way that that can happen is for there to be parliament sitting with people in the same room Last at a word, safe Marie. distance. I just want parliament to sit, uh, I, I, you know, whether it's in person or virtually, I, I think we can do this and we should be doing it for all the reasons that that Nikki has um, said. Uh, it's our premier institution without representation. Where does the legitimacy for government come from? Well, luckily this isn't a parliament and so no one can call for a division and I've got the microphone. Um, <laughs> look, thank Quorum. you so much, uh, Nikki, for coming in to uh, Democracy Sausage. Pleasure. It's been absolutely terrific to have your views. Thank and we you look for forward asking to doing me. so again. And thank you, Maria, again, as always. Terrific to hear your views. Uh, And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. If you have thoughts or comments or would like to rate the podcast, please do so. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Until later in the week, goodbye from me, Mark Kenny. Bye. Ta-da. 